From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. And today I'm excited to have on the show Anne O'Reardon and Michael Poon from Jardine Matheson. Jardine Matheson is a 180-year-old Asian conglomerate operating in retail, auto, hospitality, construction throughout Asia. Listed companies include Hong Kong Land, Mandarin Oriental, Dairy Farm, Astra, just to name a few. Anne has been the group director of digital since 2019, where she leads digital strategy. And Michael Poon is the CEO of Innovate Jardines, an initiative within the larger organization designed to promote entrepreneurship across all business units. Welcome both. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. So Jardine Matheson is a very large organization that's been around since 1832 across many verticals from hospitality to automotive and retail and nearly 500,000 employees. In a position that you're in, often large organizations, when they work with startups, are trying to figure out the role they have in that ecosystem. Often the vision is to provide the startup with distribution to share in their sort of unique advantages, whether it be supply chain, partners, customers, data, etc. It can be challenging to know how to plug in and to create true impact with the ecosystem. How does Jardines go about partnering with startups? And can you share a few examples? Yeah, certainly. We look at it, uh, working with startups in three manners. Uh, we can look at a startup as a partner or a vendor supplier, as you, as you outlined. We also have done, and I'll give you some examples of where we found the opportunity to create a JV, to create something new. And then also we have used the opportunities to actually invest in the parent companies on times. So let me take the first one, for example, which is the startup as a vendor or supplier. A good example of this is an R&D partnership we have done with Gammon Construction, which is one of our companies, and a Hong Kong startup called Amped Energy. This, uh, they launched a product together in December 2019, but the relationship goes back uh, to where... Amped was actually producing batteries for hospitals. Uh, Gammon had a business opportunity, which was on its sites. It was trying to reduce its carbon footprint. And they basically said, could you take the technology you have already developed for hospitals and create it for construction sites? And they worked very much together in an R&D capability where uh, the startup could come onto the construction sites, see the size and shape of what we were looking for. They developed between the two of them a battery storage system, which is intended as the primary source of power for construction on a, on a site. This entertainer, uh, which amplifies electricity, it basically is almost silent. It emits a zero fumes as opposed to the traditional diesel ones, and it produces uh, significantly less CO2. It also provides productivity hub for the site in that it is 4G enabled and it provides real-time update and control. So you're moving from um, a diesel-based noisy generation of, of electricity to a capability that is, you know, 4G enabled electricity as a service. Um, we've now put it into a number of our sites here in Hong Kong. Uh, we have found it as a very viable, much less noisy 
much more fuel efficient uh, and basically much more sustainable solution for our construction site. You just mentioned you you were able to bring it onto some of your client sites, like to your own sites very quickly. And I think that I would imagine for them was sort of the large value in itself. Yeah. And now we've also are helping them in their go to market strategy. So we're actually helping them to sell the product right throughout uh, Southeast Asia. And obviously, seeing as it's now in production in a number of sites, uh, they also can use it as a reference as they try to expand these capabilities more globally. So I think that's an example of, you know, just some innovation, but also some hard work and some dedication. They brought an extra set of skills to our table, but equally, it was the depth of knowledge on the construction sites and and the requirements on the construction sites and the beauty of those two things working together. Good for us and great for the startup. I love that. You know, you didn't have to think of some complex way to integrate or to learn from them, or it was really, how do we help each other and bring the value proposition of them to your businesses to get a proof point? I, I think a lot of CEOs we speak to right now try to, are trying to like overthink it at times, but that, that's great. How do you partner with them, bring immediate value? Absolutely. So for a second example on, on JVs, Michael can talk about one that he personally led. So there's a fintech company in Hong Kong called WeLab, which is a mobile lending business over the uh, phone device. They were very successful in Hong Kong and mainland China, having gathered over tens of millions of users over the past four or five years. They formed a joint venture with Astra International, which is one of the largest conglomerates in Indonesia. Now, this was very much a win-win scenario where both sides brought very complementary assets. On one hand, WeLab, as a joint venture partner, brought the technology, the know-how of how to run a startup, how to run a digital mobile lending-based business. On the other hand, Astra International brought the local market knowledge, offline presence, existing customers of their different financial services business, and the relationship and knowledge of the regulators, regulatory market in Indonesia. So this was a joint venture that was launched in September 2018. And to date, and it's about roughly a year and a half, they have over 1.5 million registered users. That seems very quick. Uh, when people often think about joint venture, it, it sounds like a lot of time. And it's, it's more complex than bringing them into your businesses, like on Anne's first point, but that is surprisingly fast. Yeah, and this is where the value of a traditional business comes into play in this world. If a startup were to create a very similar product, they would have to market their name, market the product, try to get customers to understand what this company is. But because Astra is already one of the largest companies in Indonesia, a lot of people are already familiar, not only familiar with the brand, but they trust the brand. Okay, so then you had mentioned the third part around investment. I think, Anne, you know, anything you can share there? So for the third model uh, that we have been employing, it's really looking at investment in a startup or a, a parent company. So GoCheck is a really good example. Again, uh, back in February of 2018, Astra, our Indonesian partner, invested about $150 million into GoCheck's e e Series E fundraising round. We And then we did a follow-up investment in March 2019. We got to know the company. Astra has a very large business in car dealerships in Indonesia. And they basically had you know, the offline transportation market uh, in Indonesia, a large portion of it. But with this new ride sharing and new ways of looking at transportation, it really was an opportunity for Astra to learn 
And as the two companies got to know each other well, uh, they noticed that there was an opportunity for the offline to online to come together. So Astra then launched with GoCheck a company called GoFleet. And that GoFleet basically provides to the Astra drivers some of the Astra fleet uh, car, cars and trucks and what they need. It also provides uh, maintenance services to them and insurance services to them. So bottom line, it's a bundling of the uh, multiple facets of the Astra business into one new business, which is targeted at uh, this new space of drivers in the economy. So in many ways for Astra, it's an opportunity to be able to participate in that growing new economy uh, with uh, capabilities that they know they're good at and they, they know they've been generating for years. So great opportunity for them to continue to grow as the economy evolves in kind of this more digital space, but equally great opportunity for the GoCheck drivers to access into that offline world and get access to those services so that they're all bundled up very easily and allows them to be focused on their customers, which is what they love to do, uh, such that the back end of their operations is satiated by a partner like Astra. So a really nice partnership between the two where you're, you're melding the online to offline world. What I'm hearing is across all three of these ways to participate in the in the ecosystem, it's, it sounds like speed is there. I mean, this last one with Gojek, it's not like you just cut a check. You quickly launch something new with them, which is interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think, again, it goes back to basic innovation methodology of test and learn, right? Let's look at the situation. Let's look at what you're trying to achieve, we're trying to achieve. What can we bring to the party? What can you bring to the party? That's the essence of a good partnership when you talk about partnerships from the beginnings. You know, there's many formats these partnerships can take. As I said, they can take R&D partnerships. They can take JVs. They can take investments. But ultimately, you got to keep in focus that we are trying to bring a different value proposition to the emerging Asian consumers and what is the best of both types of organizations that can bring that to market. And when you are driven by that kind of a mission, it doesn't feel like speed. It feels like we just have to do this because this is what the customers that we both want to serve deserve and demand. Right. The urgency is there. I mean, the the you know on that point about integrating both the startup and the the core business, you know, Michael, what are some of the guiding principles that you've established between your portfolio businesses and these partnerships, you know, across the three types we just discussed? I would think there are probably two really key fundamental principles for us. I think the first one is that any partnership needs to create value for our customers. At the end of the day, we can't ever lose sight that everything that we do is for the betterment of our customers, whether it's an improved product, uh, improved service, faster service, so I think that is probably one that is the first. Uh, the second one that we often ask ourselves is, can we do this on our own or do we need outside help? And if we feel that we can't do it on our own, whether we don't have maybe the capabilities, we don't have the experience, maybe we can do it, but maybe it would take longer than if we had a good partner. Uh, then in those situations, then I think we would look towards a uh, partnership. But in terms of how this has impacted our decision around venture building, Given how large we are as Jardines, you can imagine we get a lot of requests, both inbound as well as from our own internal people. So I think the impact that we, we try to keep a certain level of discipline and keep a level of focus. And as you have to kind of like triage all these inbound requests, whether they're external or internal, I would imagine, you know, like the example you shared around GoFleet, that the learnings from there now are starting to trickle into 
uh, some of the core businesses. And that's where I kind of want to go kind of switch gears towards capability building, right? Is you've now created uh, what sounds like a multi-pronged strategy to have impact and integrate with startup ecosystem. Then that's going to translate into capabilities. But what are some of the common capabilities across the core business that you're in, uh, some of the adjacent businesses that you're building? And what are some of the capabilities that require more investment? Uh, And what's, what's been your role in kind of closing the gap? So bottom line, uh, you know, to drive a more innovative culture, uh, you you do need to drive and, and enable the people and capabilities in the organization. And as I, as I keep on saying, it kind of starts on the outside with who are we trying to serve and what are we trying to serve them with? So we have different types of companies. We have B2B companies. We have B2C companies. So uh, as we analyze, what do we need to service our consumers and our customers in a different manner, whether that is in a multi-channel aspect, whether that is much more on delivery or loyalty, or whether it is then in the B2B world, uh, really moving away from the traditional ways of doing construction or engineering and moving into the more IoT space or even the BIM space for design and integrating your BIM with modular construction. There's so much happening in in these spaces. So there's a constant evolution of both demand from our customers, as I said, whether in the B2B or B2C space, uh, and equally an evolution in technology um, as as it continues to, to change. And for the audience that might not know, what is BIM? BIM is building information modeling, and it's basically a process of generating and managing building data during kind of the design and construction, and it manages the assets lifestyle. It's really a new way of using technology to do the 3D modeling or and then move on into project management, have better control over the construction process controls, and also allow uh, cross-disciplinary collaboration uh, interactions with your vendors and, and the people you're procuring from, communication with those kind of external uh, stakeholders, and then basically increases project management uh, capabilities, uh, improves decision support, and overall de-risks the execution of uh, a construction project environment all the way from design through to execution. You mentioned that there's sort of a connective learning going on, especially from the last several months of everyone working remotely and having to to change their ways. You know, when it comes to capabilities, are you finding any trends? Are people more curious around design, around data science? That has changed. Again, we can see it evolving week by week because we're getting uh, some data from these platforms as to what people are downloading and what people are interested in. And whereas I think people start trying to understand data or they're trying to understand AI, they very quickly realize that actually they need to understand customer journeys and design thinking because it fundamentally the data is kind of uh, the output from understanding your customer a little bit better. And so you see a kind of an evolutionary pattern of of self-learning with respect to all of the hype that's out there in the market, but really how do you make it practical in your own organizations? Also interestingly found people um, searching a lot on high-performing teams and how do we make the best out of, of their own people so this real desire to upskill and uh, help their teams to be the best possible teams they can be. So in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of talk around digital transformation and innovation and venture building, accelerators, incubators, etc. And Michael, often people in your position, you have to 
figure out how to transform the core business, how to integrate with a startup ecosystem, how to build and launch your own unicorns. It's a, it's a lot to juggle. What's your perspective? How do you keep the balance between everything? I think the reality is we have to keep the pedal on the pressure for all three in parallel. Uh, they're all very different and they all serve somewhat different purposes. So for instance, the innovation within the core, working with suppliers and vendors, that really helps us internally in terms of automating processes, uh, better understanding customers, improving our analytics, uh, which should drive efficiency and some cost savings as well. The part around joint ventures is more on the customer facing side where we're finding partners such as in the case of WeLab that allows us to be closer to customers in the digital world, to serve them in the way that they want to be served and where our partner can bring capabilities and experience that we are frankly not as good in. And then on the third one, this investments, it's, we do this in parallel because while the first two work with our existing businesses now, investing in companies is important so that our portfolio will have the right balance two, three, four, five, ten 10 years from now that we are in companies that will be more, uh, I guess, relevant in the future for our customers. So all these three things uh, we need to do in parallel. We do partnerships with startups. We do R&D partnerships with startups. We do JVs. We can invest. So there's many ways of looking at it. And yes, we have also helped our own companies to do their own new capabilities within their organizations. United Tractors is a very good example of that. Uh, they got some seed funding from the organization to start to innovate around their technology that they use in their minds. But after that, they built themselves out into an amazing team of over 100 people that are focused on you know, digitalizing their customer portals, improving their vendor systems, using AI to help them to identify better sales leads. So they really built out a whole capability for themselves on the back of a small amount, quite frankly, of internal investment. And then uh, built, built an organization that's really fun to work with. They're very high energy, very different, but has been able to, over the last three years, have a really significant impact on uh, the efficiency and the effectiveness of the core operations of the business and also how they interact with clients and generate uh, new sales leads, et cetera. So it's been a really good story. And there's a couple of more of those across the organization where uh, with a little bit of seed funding and very close proximity to the business and the right leadership, they can create a culture of innovation within their own organizations. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point to highlight, like the difference between growth of a startup and growth of an incubated startup within an incumbent or a large organization is that, you know, 80%, I forget the latest stat, but 80% plus of startups fail, right? For an incumbent that launches a, a startup with some seed funding, growth doesn't mean, you know, massive valuations. It might mean what you just, just described, which is the learnings from that seed funding can impact the core business as well. Yeah. I mean, there, there are lots of philosophies on how you change an organization. And uh, I think any, honestly, any of the, them can work if you get the right startup that you're working with and it has enough impact on the organization. You certainly can um, make a difference that way. If you've got the right leadership and the right culture and the right determination within an organization and a little bit more of the, uh, the wherewithal to put some money behind it and the right business case, you can make a change in the organization as well. There's a good book out this year uh, called Loom Shots, which really talks about how do you make these kind of changes happen, but really comes down to the fact that you need, you know, 
two things in two different phases, phased separation that need to come together. You need an environment which has got the right level of dynamic equilibrium is what he calls it, but dynamic, it's ready for it. It's ready to make that change. And then you've got something that has enough critical mass that is going to make an impact. So uh, those tensions between whether it's a startup and a traditional organization or whether it's a bunch of people under the right leadership in a traditional organization that want to make the change happen and creating that right culture and capabilities within the organization and then making sure you're doing that at scale um, are really the true ingredients of making it successful can be inside or outside of my view. Let's key in on that a little bit more. I mean, the readiness of the organization to create the culture, to create the momentum, to do innovation, to, to scale innovation, to, to try and experiment. And what are some of the other lessons learned that can be fed back into the core businesses? I think leadership is hugely important in this factor. I think one, you have to have a vision and a passion of how you want to serve your customers differently or better or being more relevant to them going forward and it's attuned to your growth strategy. And then you have to have the leadership courage to actually lead that change, genuinely lead it. And uh, uh, we had one of our leaders speak to us yesterday, actually. And, and in his view, the three things were, were preventing innovative changes in organizations. And one was hierarchy, two was bureaucracy, and the third was the permission to experiment or the creation of an environment where it's okay to experiment. And again, that's what you get in, in a lot of traditional organizations. As a leader, you have to challenge all of those things and make it okay for the great ideas that are coming from all multiple facets of the organization. Give them the permission to A, percolate through the organization, come up, and then give them the environments in which they can change. That involves changing the culture. It involves changing the capabilities. Sometimes it involves changing the KPIs and certainly can involve how you allocate capital. Yeah, that, that permission to experiment, that sounds like directly related to maybe how you're trying to change the culture across all the portfolio companies. And this, by the way, is one of the most toughest subjects to put your arms around culture, right? Because it's tough to measure. It's tough to sort out anything like, uh, I love that, uh, permission to experiment, anything else like that, that's kind of guiding the, the culture right now of innovation. I do think it comes down to demonstrating how you want people to behave and giving the people the permission to do so. Uh, we've had a lot of success with even physically changing office space and what it looks like, you know, just changing the environments in which people can physically work and giving them much more flexible environments to work in, you know, having a focus on diverse teams, whether those diverse teams are culturally diverse or whether they are gender diverse or even to be conscious of the fact that they need to be diverse from an age perspective as well. I agree to on environment and your point on that, it, something that needs to be role modeled from the leadership, right? Things like permission to experiment, which is another way of saying permission to fail, right? Which is a topic large organizations don't like to talk about. I really love this conversation. Some of the key themes and, and principles that I've heard at least were focusing on the customer, not just optimizing or, or changing the technology. And there seems to be a theme around speed when it comes to the ecosystem building that we talk about in the beginning, which is different than what mo most people would think about uh, large organizations. And the, the capabilities, you know, we're, we're hearing a theme uh, across some of the shows now around these capability building or, or building academies on specific capabilities across different parts of the organization. 
that leads to a change in culture. It's that last part around permission to experiment that I think we'll end on is that, you know, people should really ask themselves who, who are listening or, or in positions like this, how are you enabling, allowing that kind of mindset, the permission to experiment in your organizations? So Anne, Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Great speaking with you. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. And today I'm joined from Violet Chung, a partner in McKinsey's Hong Kong office, who leads our global ecosystem chapter and uh, Asia's digital analytics insurance practice. There's a lot to cover in this episode. We spent a lot of time, Violet, with Anne and Michael talking about their three approaches with the startup ecosystem. We spoke about how they provide startups distribution and kind of cut through sort of the noise of just hosting hackathons and, and having startups to come and give speeches. And, and we spoke about JVs and you know, their, eventually their investment with Gojek. What, what's been your experience? How, how are you seeing in this space, maybe even in fintech or outside that, how are incumbents starting to in, engage startups in a more meaningful way? Thank you, Andrew, for that. So I, I think I work mostly with financial institutions, right? So I'll speak more from that angle. But, you know, I think in the recent sort of two to three years, we've seen gradual trend of financial institutions, traditional financial institutions, both investing significantly in the fintechs. Right. And also looking for either JVs or joint partnerships with uh, fintechs to help them with particular areas where, you know, the, the traditional incumbents may not have expertise in. Right. So this comes in many forms. They either sort of start a fund that invests in specifically in the, these fintech firms. Or, you know, they are quite tactical in terms of, you know, which are the capabilities that they want to leapfrog on, right? And they look into those capabilities physically. For example, it could be cloud, it could be on core banking, it could be on analytics capability, it could be on lending capability, it, it could be quite specific, right? Or, you know, they work with a selective few sort of incubators or, or, or fintech firms on a particular capability, right? So for example, in China, we've, I've seen a lot of fintech firms with uh, either specific payment capability or robo-advisory uh, capability working with uh, some of the large incumbents. So that that's actually quite uh, prevalent these years. And I think the, the traditional financial institutions are actually uh, starting to change the mindset of, you know, I need to invest to do everything on my own to, you know, how do I trade off between sort of the capabilities I would invest on my own versus the capabilities that I would actually cooperate, invest in uh, fintech firms in order to get there. And one example we spoke about uh, in the episode was about WeLab coming into Indonesia through a joint venture with Astra. So Astra can kind of get a, a step forward in the, this fintech space of, around, around loans. Any, any examples you're, you're seeing out there on, on similar types of joint ventures? And would you say you're seeing more joint ventures coming up or, you know, larger funds coming up from the incumbents? Yeah, typically, you know, we see two scenarios when, when JV makes sense, right? So, for example, we've seen quite a bit of JVs when Alibaba's of the world or Ping'an's of the world, when there's new subsidiaries, the fintech subsidiaries are, are going overseas, right? And they're looking for partnerships with incumbents in new markets that they may not understand, but they have the capabilities and learnings from their, their, their home markets, right? So we've seen that with, for example, with Ant 
financial when they try to enter new markets or, or you know, for, for example, we're paying on a doctor when they try to enter new markets or, or uh, with their Wine Connect. So when players are going overseas and some of these fintech firms are going overseas, they do need sort of partnership with large incumbents in a very meaningful way for them to be able to get access, right? And the second thing I think is also related to the first uh, scenario, but I think this one's a bit more distinct, is when large incumbents are trying to go overseas as well for license reasons, right? And we see quite a bit of that in China these days as uh, asset management opens up and wealth management opens up, right? So we see players like Vanguard, um, BlackRock, you know, any of the big uh, sort of large asset managers that you, you can see overseas are trying to partner with some of the fintech firms here, um, both for the licensing and also for sort of some of the disruption capabilities. And lastly, relationship with regulators is pretty important as well, right? So you see quite a bit of that, but I think sort of, oh no, besides the JV, I think most of the larger financial institutions are setting aside uh, certain funding to invest or co-invest uh, with these fintech firms. So I would say most players are doing investments, right? And, you know, selective players for strategic reasons I mentioned are, are doing JVs. Right. So the motivation for, for JV between the incumbent and the startup kind of goes both ways. If the startup wants to enter a, a new market, they JV with the incumbent to help get local knowledge and know-how. And and if the incumbent needs to enter a new market, they may JV with a startup in that new market for not just licensing, but relationships with regulators and, and also a know-how. And in, in general, you're seeing an increase in uh, overall investment activity or venture fund, corporate uh, venture capital activity. Is that right? That's correct. So later in the conversation with Anne and Michael, we start getting into capabilities and culture. And just wanted to get some of your reactions to that and sort of trends you're seeing out there. You know, where, where are the gaps? Is it in design thinking? Is it in analytics? Is it around recruiting and people management? I think a few things that we've seen over time, right? One is doing startups or innovation within large incumbent setting. You do need to essentially sandbox it in, in, in some ways, right? And the reason why the sandbox is important is because innovation actually requires very different type of talents, right? So you can't assume the same talent mix, the same folks doing different stuff. Right. So I think sort of, you know, having a very different talent mix in that sandbox is very important. The second thing is it requires a very different governance. A lot of times innovation dies in a large corporate setting is because you expect it to learn how to run even before it knows how to crawl, right? Or having a, proof, a proven sort of MVP and be able to iterate on, on top of that. And, you know, that that's not possible, right? So you need a very different type of governance and measure of success. I think the third thing is, um, you know, and this is often missed, is that you, you actually need to stage gate the funding. And this goes hands in hand with the previous point I mentioned. You know, you need to stage gate the funding and also, you know, have a very different measure of success. But the stage gating is important. Right, because you have two very extreme scenarios when large corporates try to do innovation, and that both both scenarios don't work. Uh, in a sense that you know you try to invest too much on something that's not viable, 
right? And you keep on investing in hoping something will click. So that doesn't work. Or, you know, you need them to prove that they can make money again, all right, at a very early point in time. So you need to satiate and satiate the funding according to the right milestone. Yeah, that, I think that's a big that's a big theme, you know, often around capabilities and innovation, corporate venture building, there's there's lots of talks around design thinking analytics, but you're you're keying in on the capital management of 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 that initiative. And I I've also seen the stage gating work or or not work where you just let the initiative run too long and you're just throwing money at it or you're 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 killing it off too soon, you know, pre-product market fit. And, and then I think the fourth thing is uh, similar to what you're saying on sort of that the design thinking analytics, right? I, I think, especially with financial institutions, I, I think everyone has been saying customer first, but how do you really sort of be extremely agile and iterate your understanding and your proposition? And you know, obviously, there's a lot of analytics behind that, so that it actually becomes much closer to what the customer wants and, and be able to sort of redesign your journey at a very iterative and fast iteration speed, right, towards what they need is actually a very difficult task, right? Uh, I think especially with financial institutions because of how the culture traditionally has been and how things are organized, right? So being able to break through the walls of functional departments, because traditional financial institutions are extremely good at their silos, right? But how do you sort of break through that so that, you know, you actually disrupt how even some of these uh, processes or DNAs of these organizations are formed is typically the hardest thing to, to, to work through, right? But that's also sort of the... The, the the most important breakthrough why fintechs or these innovations might work. So I, I think that in itself is the way of working. That in itself is how one organizes around uh, the operating model. I think culture has a huge part of it to do with it. And to sort of omit the culture part, I, I think to, to me, especially with new startup, it, it's actually quite simple to it comes with a few components. I would say the first component is having a common vision, right? But that's not sort of too long-term, right? But that's more or less foreseeable. And then BM would break down to bi-weekly, weekly, and daily tasks, right? The second thing is having celebrating small successes along the way. And you need to have those successes. And that actually builds a culture and foundation of the team. I, I agree with that. I mean, I've, I've always said great culture comes from winning, right? It doesn't come from the foosball table and the, and the free craft beer on, on Fridays, right? The setting itself is only the form. I, I think that the essence is, you know, how, how do you create the right balance between short-term and long-term? How do you make sure that, you know, people are clear and we have a sense of clear goals um, and these uh, are achievable goals that, that actually gets you somewhere. Yeah. So on that note, I think culture being measured by, you know, shorter term wins or, or goals and not, and not just sort of just the vision statement and the, and, and the words that often people just put on the walls. Okay. Thank you so much, Violet. Appreciate the comments and we'll talk soon. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.